the first time that I nearly died, uh, as I looked out the window of the hospital room and I reflected back on my life, I didn't regret anything that I had done or anything that I had said. I only regretted things that I had not done or had not said to people that I loved. I regretted lack of action as opposed to action. And so as I got out of the hospital for the third time, so the third time I had almost died in a six-month period, and I realized that I needed to live by this motto, think it, do it. If you think of something, if you want to do something, and if it's the right thing to do, you need to do it because you won't, at least in my experience, regret the things that you did do. You'll regret the things that you didn't do. That's Dr. David Fagenbaum, a rare disease survivor and MBA who has led the search for his own cure. I'm Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm the guy who invented the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out. Today, FOMO is an epidemic and is changing us so much that it sort of feels like we're evolving into a new species. But FOMO doesn't have to take over your life. You can find the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. I'll show you how right here on FOMO Sapiens. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome to Season 3 of FOMO Sapiens, the show where I interview people who are changing the world and ask them how they choose from among the many opportunities and options in their busy lives. I'm so happy to be back for a new season, and I promise it's going to be bigger and better than ever before. This season, I have so much planned for you, and I'm coming in hot today with a guest who was truly remarkable. If you were to stare death in the face five times before the age of 30, how would it change the way you live? My guest today has done exactly that and will share how battling a rare and harrowing disease gave him the conviction to make the most of his time and his talent. He will also discuss why he decided to get an MBA to build the skills he needed to find a cure for his own disease. Dr. David Fagenbaum is a survivor, scientist, and disease hunter. As the co-founder and executive director of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network and one of the youngest individuals to be appointed to the faculty of the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, he has dedicated his life to discovering new treatments and cures for deadly diseases. A graduate of Georgetown, Oxford, the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, and the Wharton School of Business, David is the author of the stunning new memoir, Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, David Fagenbaum. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Dr. David Fagenbaum. That's right. Me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's so good to have you here. Um, I want to start out with the same question I start out with everybody, which is that everybody feels a little FOMO sometimes. So what turns you into a FOMO Sapiens? So I had my last rights read to me when I was 25 years old, and I've considered that moment to really be the start of my overtime, this period where I have extra time and I need to make the most of every second. So while there are times where I do feel like I'm missing out, I actually am okay with that. I embrace that I'm missing out on some things because I got to do the things I really, really, really want to do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm really excited to talk about your story today. Let's get started in the beginning. Uh, So you were a college football player. You went to Georgetown, which is my alma mater as well. Um, and your nickname was the beast. You excelled in academics. Everything's going well. You go to medical school and you know, you're sort of, I mean, like for lack of a better term, winning in life, everything's kind of going in the right direction. And then something happens to change your life. So take us back to what happened and what, what it was that changed the whole course of your life. Yeah, absolutely. So I was this healthy third year medical student and had never had any problems before. And over the course of just a couple weeks, I started experiencing night sweats and fatigue, uh, fluid accumulating in my legs. I didn't know why. Uh, my lymph nodes were enlarged, enlarged in my neck and, and couldn't figure out what was going on. I eventually went to went down the hall from where I was taking care of patients to the emergency department where I'd 
you know, had previously been treating patients and they ran some blood work and said, David, your liver, your kidneys, and your bone marrow are not working. We don't know why. We need to hospitalize you right away. And so they hospitalized me, and very soon I was transferred to the intensive care unit. I had my last rites read to me around that time because the doctors didn't think I would survive because all of my organs were shutting down, and we didn't know why. Uh, and it became, or it would lead to what would be almost six months hospitalized with a number of relapses and remissions. And so you, I mean, you're a medical student. You you understand what's happening to you. You've seen this and other patients all the time, and now you're living it yourself, which had to be, I, I don't know, is it better to know more or is it better to know less at that point? I think it might be better to know less. I, I was seeing lab tests abnormal in me that um, I'd seen in my patients before, uh, but in fact, my labs were even worse than, than the patients that I had ever seen. So it was um, it was frightening. Yeah, and, and, and so you're in the hospital, and as I recall in the book, this happens you sort of get better. There's some treatments that are given to you. I believe it's chemotherapy and That's right. things get better. You stretch, feel better. You get out of the hospital. You're thinking, okay, maybe, maybe this is, you know, I'm going to start getting better. And then you relapse, you relapse again. And eventually, um, and each time you're at the brink of death and then you realize you have this diagnosis, which is Castleman's disease. So what is Castleman's disease? Castleman's is a rare immune system disorder where basically the immune system attacks and shuts down your vital organs. It's kind of like a cross between an autoimmune disease and a cancer. It's about as common as ALS, diagnosed in about 5,000 patients each year. And my subtype, about a third of us die within five years of diagnosis and another third die within 10 years of diagnosis. So it was frightening to get the diagnosis. But as you said, it was, it was kind of just the beginning of this journey. And throughout this journey, I've actually nearly died five times. And with each of these near-death experiences. I've learned so much about living experiences and lessons that, that I really want to share. And that's, that's why I wrote the book. So you go, this is what really blew my mind when I read this book, because I think a lot of us, you talk about this Santa Claus principle and the idea that when you lived in this, um, and I think a lot of us do this, like you live in a world where things seem pretty certain. The sun rises in the morning, sets at night, you kind of know what you're going to do. And then you have this this realization that, for example, for you, you thought medicine was just, you know, it was a question of, okay, I, I figure out what's wrong with me and then let's go find that doctor who has the cure. And then that realization goes away overnight because you, you know, not only did the diagnosis take a lot of time, but then you start to realize like, listen, there is no cure for what I, what I have. Like, how did that, how did you come to that realization and how did that shape the way that you moved forward from there? Yeah. Before I, I went into medical school, I had this belief, as you said, that there must be people doing work somewhere to figure out all diseases and that it was being done in a coordinated fashion. And that if the treatment hadn't been identified yet, there was something, you know, coming down the pipeline. I, I've subsequently learned and, and, and learned um, kind of the hard way as a patient when I was on the only experimental drug for Castleman disease and it, and it didn't work for me to find out that there were no more drugs in development and there was no promising research being done that would potentially lead to a, a treatment or a cure for me. And that was just such a sobering and, and really frightening experience. I, I felt completely alone. Oh my gosh, how is there not a community figuring this out? How is there not reason to be hopeful? And, and for me, I, I'd been a very hopeful person. I kind of was optimistic and believed that, you know, good things happen to good people and, and, and that the right things are always being done. But in that experience, what I realized is that if I wanted a future and if I wanted my hopes for a, a family and, and a long life, that I needed to turn those hopes into action and to start getting involved and in trying to make that dream a reality. Right. So what do you do? 
So I promised my family at, at that moment, I told my dad, my sisters, and my wife that I would dedicate the rest of my life, however long that may be, tr to trying to identify a treatment or a cure for Castleman's. And for me, that was beginning a foundation called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. We wanted to bring together researchers, physicians, and patients from around the world to drive forward research, and then also begin conducting laboratory research at the University of Pennsylvania, where I was a medical student. So using my own samples to try to understand this disease. Okay, and so you started experimenting on yourself. And at the same time, you sort of had a mental shift. You, you talk about in this in the book, you get out of the hospital. And, um, you know, <laughs> I love this because it's like you haven't eaten a burger for 10 years. And you go to Five Guys, which, you know, by all accounts is delicious. And you, you have a burger. And so you have this new mindset that you bring to the work that you're doing. Tell us about that. Yeah, so the first time that I nearly died, uh, as I looked out the window of the hospital room and I reflected back on my life, I didn't regret anything that I had done or anything that I had said. I only regretted things that I had not done or had not said to people that I loved. I regretted lack of action as opposed to action. And so as I got out of the hospital for the third time, so the third time I had almost died in a six month period, and I realized that I needed to live by this motto, think it, do it. If you think of something, if you want to do something, and if it's the right thing to do, you need to do it because you won't at least in my experience, regret the things that you did do, you'll regret the things that you didn't do. And so Think It Do It was on my mind that day. And as I walked through the airport, I saw there was a five guys. And, and as you said, I'd, I'd been super healthy, really fit, played college football, and I hadn't had a burger in a decade. And so I decided to Think It Do It. So, so I went in and had a, had a burger. And that was um, fortunately, um, you know, just the first step towards this kind of new life of, of trying to live with no regrets. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm curious what you think. So I get it. You know, you have been to the brink of death and back multiple times. So you sort of say to yourself, listen, if I'm living on, you know, an overtime and, and if I see something I want to do, I'm going to do it. Would you say how does that relate to impulsivity? Are they, is that the same thing or is it different? I think that um, I actually think it's very different because um we have a lot of impulses. And if you are impulsive, then you will just immediately act on those impulses. But Think it, do it, um, and I talk about it in the book, and I don't know if, if it really comes across that well, but it's this, there's a comma in between think it and do it. And the point is is that you think it, you need to decide, is that the right thing to do? And then, and then you need to do it if it's the right thing. It's not to be impulsive and to do, you know, the first thing comes across your brain, but it's to kind of liberate you to say that, like, if I'm thinking about creating a foundation to do good for X or Y cause, I just need to do it. You know, don't let... Um, don't let the naysayer in the back of your head tell you it's not a good idea or that you'll never succeed. It's about kind of feeling liberated to, to go against what maybe your brain's telling you to do. Right. And so you, you know, it's interesting about you. So you're, you're fighting for your life and then you decide to go get an MBA as one does. I mean, it's funny. You have, you have degrees from Georgetown and Oxford and Penn, and then you make this interesting choice, which a lot of people listening to the show have, you know, our business people, maybe they've done an MBA. You thought this was, you know, you determined this was a critical part of where you move forward and you went to Wharton. So like, I mean, first of all, you know, I'm going to forgive you for not going to HBS. It's, <laughs> it's okay. But, but, uh, what brought you to make the decision that that was going to be a critical part of finding the cure to your disease and helping other people? So at this stage, I had almost died four times, and I was fighting with everything I had to try to identify a new treatment for myself to better understand the disease. I had built this foundation. The foundation was making progress. But what I learned really quickly as I got into the research space was that 
the real rate limiting step for a lot of this work and the thing really holding back discoveries of treatments and cures, they really weren't science or technology problems. They were the fact that people weren't working well together, that the, that the system wasn't well organized, that the money and the resources and the samples were not being used efficiently. These are, these are actually things that you don't learn about in medical school. These are challenges and problems that, that you learn about in the, business, in the business world and that an MBA can help you to gain the skills around. So for me, it was, I wanted to develop these skills, but it also would give me time to continue to do my laboratory work in parallel. Because if I went on to a medical residency, I wouldn't have been able to keep up the lab work. And how does it work? I mean, you think about the world of medicine. It's a world, it's, you know, we have a, a medical system in the United States where you have these massive pharmaceutical companies that have like seemingly unlimited money. Mm-hmm. They're developing cures for big diseases. And then there's, you know, oftentimes some of those drugs can be used for a secondary purpose, maybe to, to, to help, you know, solve a, a, a disease that is, that is less well-known or less, that has less incidences. And then you have hospitals and you have researchers, but like nobody's talking to each other. And so you could have, I remember in your book, you have a, a person in Japan uh, that had found particular uh, uh, efficacy with some drugs. Yep. You had a, a person in, in Little Rock who was sort of like the sort of well-known, established sort of leader in the space. And they're not talking to each other. And so like, how do you, MBA student, Dr. David, like how do you break through the logjam to actually get people to work together? So that was really hard. And, and that surprised me. I just assumed everyone must be talking and everyone must be working together. That was kind of an assumption that I was I was wrong about. and. Very quickly, the, the first step when I created this foundation, um, we decided to look at how other foundations had, had operated to move forward treatments and cures. And what I found was that most foundations raise money and then they in, invite researchers to apply for it. And you kind of hope the right researcher applies for the right project at the right time. Um, and unfortunately, in the rare disease space where you may only have a few people applying, it's really unlikely that all those things are going to line up, that the, the best person for the best project is going to apply at the right time. So really, we felt like we needed to bring together a global community. And just as you said, once I started reaching out to folks in Japan and France and across the U.S., I was shocked they had never even communicated before. The only way they communicated was by writing a medical journal article and then you know two years later someone writes another medical article and that's like their way of communicating which is you know frightening as a patient that that's the pace of progress and so we wanted to get the community together and then once we got them together we started to try to identify what research should be done to, to really crowdsource what's the most important research and again I, I was shocked that a lot of these groups they had never talked before but they also really weren't interested in, in talking moving forward it was kind of like everyone does their own thing and unfortunately in research even though we're all searching for cures, we're not necessarily doing it in a collaborative way. And so for us, we really fought to get everyone working together. And, and one way that I would even just get um, other groups and, and, and researchers to, to pay attention um, to what we were doing and to, to want to work together was by including patients as part of these meetings. And so we're a bunch of scientists and physicians in the room, but also including patients in the room to help to help to focus these guys. So it's not about who's the first author and who's the last author. It's about trying to develop treatments for patients. Tudo bem, meus queridos fomos sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. 
Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. It's it's so interesting because when you think about you know as a when we study business and we look at the great businesses of the world nobody says like what a great business it's so siloed right because knowledge can't flow capital can't flow and you have an industry where literally we're throwing money at a problem which is healthcare like the the amount of money that's spent in America and then the outcomes that we're getting out of that out of that money are it's there's a huge disconnect right so so you're attacking a system and you're doing it by bringing all these people together and trying to create systems for them to collaborate. And what you're not telling them, and this is the part that I thought was really interesting, is that you have this disease. Yeah. So why didn't you want people to know that you were, you know, a patient as well as a sort of practitioner and problem solver? Yeah, it, it, it's a it's an important question. And at the time, I think it's a combination of reasons. One is that I was worried that they wouldn't take me seriously as a scientist and as a physician. If, um, unfortunately, a, a lot of times when you hear that someone's a patient, maybe you, you treat them differently and it shouldn't be that way, but I was worried that would happen with me. I, I think also I personally, um, I don't know, I, I didn't feel confident enough to, to kind of share with the world that I had this disease, which is kind of ironic considering I just wrote a book that came out, you know, about chasing my cure and I'm now telling the world about my disease. But at the time, I really just didn't feel comfortable sharing. Um, and uh, in hindsight, I, I really wish I should. I, I wish I did. Do you think it would have this uh, vulnerability is something that's really hard for people? I mean, you're a doctor. So you, you talk about this in the book, uh, doctors, you know, they're authorities, they walk in the room, yes. some, you know, there's a God complex there and it's not necessarily that doctors want to be treated that way, but they, they are because when you show up somewhere and you don't feel good and yes. you're looking for solutions, you see this doctor and you want to connect with them and you want to believe in them. And so you, you know, you've been on the other side of the table. Do you think like this vulnerability could have actually mobilized more for you sooner or, or would it have worked against you? I think it could have. I think we, we could have mobilized more early on. Um, I eventually did become open to, to sharing my story, making that part of it. And, and I think that really has helped to, to speed up progress. Um, right after that fourth flare where I almost died and then I had a fifth one that occurred again, almost dying. And, and this time around, I actually dove into the data that I'd been generating and actually was able to identify a treatment from the lab work that is actually, I started myself on that drug based on the work. And that was a really important step because once I was now on this drug and it was starting to help me, I felt like I needed to start telling these doctors and these scientists, you know, A, that this drug might be possible and B, that I'm actually the patient that's on it. So it kind of liberated me to feel like I needed to start telling people. That must have rocked people's worlds, by the way. I can only imagine the people who've been working with you. Yeah. So let's talk about that. You know, so you're sitting here in front of me and you look great, right? And you've been healthy for five years. How did you find this cure? Uh, and sort of what have you done with the information and with the fact that you have found a cure that works for you? Or I don't want to say cure. Yeah. Cure is the wrong word. A treatment that is keeping you healthy. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So after that fifth relapse happened and I nearly died again, um, 
I really dove into the data to identify any sort of patterns or signals in the data that could give me an idea for a drug that might be able to be used against it. So there's only one drug FDA approved for Castleman's, and unfortunately that drug didn't work for me. So now we're in the world of kind of the unknown, of off-labels. You know, are there drugs out there that might actually be able to help me with my Castleman disease, even if they were developed for something else, some other disease? And so um, from that work, we did find that there was a particular communication line um, within the immune system that was hyperactivated in my samples, and so decided to try a drug called serolimus that inhibits that pathway and that communication line. It was developed 25 years ago for kidney transplantation. It had never been used before for Castleman's, um, but I started on it five and a half years ago, and I've been in remission ever since. And, and as you said, I, I don't like to use the word cure because I don't know, it may come back tomorrow. Um, but I'm really grateful that it, um, that I've been in remission as long as that I have been in. And I think that there's a really important, well, two important lessons. One is thinking about and asking the question, how many other drugs are there out there that were developed for one disease that might actually be treatments or cures for another rare disease? There's 7,000 rare diseases, 95% of which don't have a single FDA-approved drug. So how many of these drugs that exist for one thing might actually be treatments for another and the second really important question is, it might be working for me, but how many other patients is this actually helping? And so far, um, Castleman's is rare. There's about 5,000 patients diagnosed each year. But so far, we've only given the drug to about 10 other Castleman's patients. Um, it's helped about half of them, and then the other half, it hasn't helped. They were too sick. They were in the ICU, and the drug didn't work. Um, but we're now, we actually just launched a clinical trial a couple weeks ago to test this drug in more patients. And so you've, you've had 10, I imagine this is where you get into the bureaucracy and and. And obviously there are systems put in place that are important because if, if we just gave everybody drugs all the time and just said, oh, try this, wouldn't be good. But at the same right. time, you now need to manage and I imagine you have to coordinate a lot of different, different factors. So like, what is the secret as an entrepreneur? Because you are a complete and total entrepreneur. What is the secret to breaking through in an industry that is so, um, you know, maybe resistant to change? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that um, it's been staying focused on mission and staying focused on patients um, because you're right. Physicians are, are not often interested in trying new things that don't yet have clinical trials supporting them. Um, researchers are, are similarly hesitant and um, hospital systems and payers are, are also going to be. So, so the various players all have good reason, as you said, to, to be hesitant about, about new things that don't really have much data behind them. So I think the, the real key is to make sure that, that we do follow the data, that we do say, you, you know what, you're right, let's, let's use the drug and the drugs that have data behind them first. Um, like the one drug that is FDA approved for Castleman disease, that drug works for about a third to one half of patients. And so we need to treat patients with that drug because it's safe and there's data behind it. But for the people where that drug doesn't work, where the alternative is chemotherapy that can make you very, very sick and unfortunately doesn't always work. For those patients, let's think about what we can do that, that maybe we could be um, a little bit more creative and use a drug like the one that I'm on. But it, it's certainly not easy. And at the end of the day, we need more data. And that's why we're doing this trial. And right now you're a faculty member, I think the youngest faculty member ever at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Is that correct? One of the youngest. Okay, one of the youngest. Still pretty good. Um, <laughs> and you also are running CDCN. Um, and so you, you're building all this knowledge. You're doing incredible things. You're an entrepreneur as well. You got that that Warden degree right. in your belt. And I, it's interesting. I was in a conference last week listening to uh, some, some really fascinating new businesses around personalized medicine. And there was a, a guy there who lost his father to brain cancer. And so he's working on a, a really interesting technology that allows you to do basically try different combinations of drugs and test them very quickly. What used to take a long time, he can find out 
really quickly whether or not different combinations work for specific cancers. And so these powerful things are happening. So you, I imagine you see all these developments and you're always, you know, sort of encountering entrepreneurs in the space. Like what, you know, let's talk about like the hope that, you know, obviously no Santa Claus here. We, we know that like there's no magic bullet, but at the same time, a lot of technology out there that's being developed. So what does it get you excited when you think about the kinds of things that could be curious for you or the people like you in the future? I think the thing that I'm most excited about, because, you know, I, I live in overtime. So, so everything is about kind of short term, you know, can we, you know, make the most of this time because we don't know how long we don't have any guarantees about the future. And so living with that sort of a mindset, um, I'm most excited about the idea of using existing technologies like serum proteomics and single cell RNA sequencing. Some of the new technologies that have come out today to be able to better understand what's wrong in patients' particular diseases and then immediately think about what drugs already exist that might be able to help that disease in, in ways that maybe it had never been tried before. It's this you know, concept of off-label drug use, which, of course, is what's saving my life. And so I really, um, of course, we need new drugs to be developed always for the future. Um, but as far as helping patients tomorrow, I'm really, really excited about the idea of using these new technologies to understand, you know, can these old drugs be used to help patients in new ways? Now, as you as you think about all of that, um, you know, let's take this back to your own experience and how I, you know everybody listening to this has probably been through something like this at one or will be. I mean, that's the nature of the human existence. And so, you know, you feel great one day and then the next day you don't, and you go to the doctor and it's scary because you know one thing I've learned like in, in past when I when I've like had a health challenge is and, and I you know when when my when my firm blew up in two thousand and eight, I ended up at the doctor with night sweats and swollen glands. And thankfully it was, it was kind of like this weird virus that went away. But you know, when you, when I read that in your book, it put me right back there. And one thing you realize when you're a patient the first time is like, um, there's, they just want a lot of tests. There's a whole like diagnostic, the whole process, like it doesn't happen overnight. Like you're, and you start to feel you, you have no control. Um, you, you're like on a boat in the middle of the ocean that's swaying back and forth. You don't know if you've just got a virus or if you got life-threatening disease. And so as uh, for people listening to this on our show today that, that may be going through that or have family members that you like, what, put yourself, you know, you've been this, like, what is the key to getting through this kind of a situation? You know, whether it's very serious or not serious, I imagine there's some shared kind of things you have to deal with. Yeah, it's an important question. I think that in the time before you have the diagnosis, being, um, aware of the fact that sometimes diagnoses can take a long time to be made and that sometimes um, there can be a lot of uncertainty and that's really, really hard to deal with. But if and when that diagnosis is made and if it is a more serious diagnosis, if it is a potentially a rare disease with less known, I really encourage you to, to find who is the expert. I really encourage you to advocate for yourself to, to get to wherever that person is. If you have to take a long car ride or a flight, get to Get to the person that knows the disease best because at the end of the day, you need you need to find physicians who are experienced with your particular disease. For, for me, I went to Little Rock, Arkansas to Fritz Van Rie, who's the world's expert for Castleman disease. And I remember being, A, so thankful that I had someone who thought a lot about Castleman's, who knew a lot about Castleman disease. But then when I found out that he didn't have any more answers for me, that was a really sobering and challenging moment to say, okay, if the world's expert doesn't have answers, then maybe we need to start generating and creating more knowledge. And so that, I guess, gets to my second recommendation, which is if you hope for a cure and if you have a disease that you know needs more answers and needs more treatments, reflect on, on what you might be able to do to help get there. You know, can you raise money? Can you raise awareness? Can you 
help to coordinate the community? Can you organize a meeting? Are there things that you can do to help to get that hope a little bit closer to reality? And at the same time, you um, you you didn't do this alone. You've been surrounded by some amazing yes. people. And and one of the things in the book that I found particularly moving is you talk about your mom got brain cancer when you were at Georgetown and you were a caregiver to her as were your two sisters and your dad. And then when you were sick, you know, you had your now wife, uh, wife's family. Now you have a daughter. So you had, and of course your family, um, immediate family has been surrounding you and supporting you. So if somebody's listening to this and they have somebody in their life, who's going through a really tough time with health, like what can they, cause I think a lot of times we freeze up. It's like, Oh my God, what do I do? Especially if it's not immediate family, it's like that person may disappear and yeah. you don't know what to do. Like, Having been on the other side of that, like what can we do to support the people around us? I think that um, the first thing that comes to mind is that humor can be really powerful in the midst of really tough times. What I found with my mom and then, then also with my experience is that sometimes humor is like the best medicine for bringing people together. Laughing with the people you love is, um, is so special, and at least it's been so special and powerful for me. Uh, I mean, one example of that um, from when my mom was first diagnosed, she had a, a brain tumor, as you mentioned, and had a, um, surgery to take the tumor out of her brain. And after the surgery, my family and I, we were, of course, so scared when we went to see her. We didn't know if we would even, if it would even be my, our mom when we came back there, you know, how much would she have changed with a large portion of her brain taken out? And when we went to see her, she had a wrap around her head um, from, from the surgery, and she had a, a bulb coming out uh, where fluid was draining. Um, and uh, she looked at us and she pointed to her head and she said, Chiquita banana lady. Uh, <laughs> and we burst into laughter because, you know, she's making joke and making a joke and making light of, of this experience. You know, her head is wrapped from a surgery and she's got this bulb coming out and she thinks she looks like the Chiquita banana lady. And, and we just we needed that. And we burst into laughter and said, OK, we've still got our mom. And, and those are the kinds of moments that um, in the, that it could have gone kind of another way, which could have been just, you know, we all just cried and it was, you know, we we're just so sad because of what she's gone through. But, but that sort of moment of laughter and, um, and happiness is exactly what we needed. So David, this is the show about finding the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. So you have clearly had a lot of practice doing that. So what's your advice to our listeners? Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, this concept of overtime that, um, life is short. I know that I'm in overtime because I've almost died five times and I've, you know, my first overtime was when I had my last rights read and I can really hear the clock ticking. I, I, I have been in remission for five and a half years, um, but I know that I could relapse at any time, which has kind of liberated me to, to live the kind of life that you talk about, which is to say, I want to make the most of every moment and I want to be, and I'm totally okay missing out on things that maybe aren't right at the top of my priority list. And so I think for, for listeners, what I would try to share is that I know I'm in overtime. I can hear the, the clock ticking, but the reality is we're, we're all in overtime. We all need to make the most of our time and, and we should you know live like we're in overtime. And that's not, that's not to say we should be anxious and uh, impulsive, but it's that we should think it comma, think about it and then do it. And we should really make the, the most of the time that we have. I have nothing to add to that because I think that that is pretty sage advice. Uh, um, David, where can we find out more about the, the work that you do with Castle Wounds Disease and where can we find out more about the book and about you and, and you know, maybe buy the book and follow you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the Castle Wounds Disease Collaborative Network, our website is cdcn.org. Um, we're an organization trying to drive forward research for Castleman disease, but also to better understand the immune system for many other diseases. We'd be so grateful for anyone's support of the CDCN. And to learn more about, about my book, you can go to chasingmycure.com. The book's available everywhere books are sold. And um, I'd be so thrilled for you 
as listeners to check out the book and also to share it with someone who's inspired you or who's been inspirational for you. And let me tell you something. I read the book over the weekend. I read it nearly in one sitting. I read 180 pages and I read the final 40 the next day. And um, I <laughs> emailed David because I... Um, I started reading it in the morning and then I walked to the subway and I was in the subway in Brooklyn and I cried 11 times in the course of reading the book. I was in the subway at Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, like tears rolling out of my face onto the floor. People were looking at me like something was wrong with me. And um, the point is that it's, it's, it's an amazing book. It's a book that uh, inspires a lot of hope, but also it really, I think for anybody who wants to learn more about the medical world and how things really happen, it's also quite, uh, quite shocking the way things work out there. And there's a lot we can do to change those. So um, definitely check out the book and uh, uh, Dr. David Feigenbaum, thanks for stopping by. Thank you for having me. It's been awesome. FOMO. And now it's time for the FOMO moment of the show, which is when I talk about FOMO and its role in pop culture or tell you about something that's giving me FOMO. And today I'm actually hoping to give you FOMO because I am excited to announce some big news. While I was away over the summer, I was hunkered down putting the finishing touches on my upcoming book, Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. The book drops on May 1st, 2020, but starting today, you can pre-order at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMOSapiens. And if that news has you feeling some FOMO, don't worry, I've got your back. I also spent some time this summer creating a little gift for all of you FOMO Sapiens listeners. It'll hold you over until next May when the book comes out. It is called the FOMO Sapiens Handbook, and it's an exclusive and even better free handbook that includes the secret history of FOMO, a FOMO diagnostic, and even a step-by-step plan to turn your FOMO into a force for good. You can download it now for free at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO Sapiens. So check it out and make sure to let me know what you think. FOMO. Big news, you can now pre-order my upcoming book, Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMOSapiens. While you're there, make sure to download my free gift for you, the FOMO Sapiens Handbook, which is an exclusive guide to spotting and managing FOMO and even turning it into a force for good. And as always, if you have an idea for the FOMO moment of the show, you can reach me on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, or on email at letsconnect at patrickmcginnis.com. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents Network. The show is produced by AW360 and recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis. If you like today's show, please be sure to subscribe, rate it, and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com. You can also take the official FOMO diagnostic at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO-quiz to find out if you're a FOMO Sapiens. FOMO.